In the week in which Boris Johnson showed Britain what freedom could look like, a small bunch of game developers made Vikings cool again, and Daft Punk announced that they were returning to their home planet. What more could you need than two blokes just talking about films for an hour? Oh, that's Hello, a good one. To- Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the uh, Rip Ticket sh- Review, uh, where we review old movies and TV shows and talk about them for an hour. Uh, my name is Mr. Carver, and joining me is my Marty to, if I'm Doc, I guess, uh, Jack Smith himself. Jack, great Scott Smith. That's literally what I wrote as well. Hello and welcome <laughs> to the Rip Ticket Review, wherever you're listening or watching. And if it's not obvious enough, we're talking about the greatest trilogy, well, one of the greatest trilogies ever made, because we've, we've been talking off air about the trilogy we're going to talk about next week. But this week we're talking all yeah. things Back to the Future, all, all three parts, mm-hmm. because... It was on the list for the films that reopened cinemas last time round. I mean, we've talked about road maps because where we're going, we don't need roads. No. <laughs> I, yeah. So before before we before we launch into the, the three films, it's important to note that these films are thirty years old now, and they, it doesn't feel like they've aged that much. No, they, they are they they they're a, a part of a film category where they are timeless classics. Mm. There's certain films which are really, really great, but they've aged. Like Citizen Kane, for example. Yeah. is An, an example of a great movie has aged like warm milk. Mm. Um, what else have we got here? Um, Attack of the Titans, Clash of the Titans, maybe, is, is another one. Great film has aged pretty badly in terms of effects. Back to the Future... Complete opposite. Great yeah. film. Yes, all right. There are some bits where, you, you know, the hairstyles and the fashion, it's, it's in the 80s. Who cares? It's still great. It's like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Robocop. It's one of the, you know, the original Back to the Future is one of those movies that just, it, it, it doesn't, you can watch it now and it's find it just as entertaining, if not more so, than had you watched it in 1985. It's it's brilliant. Yeah, and it's a very difficult thing to do. It is a very difficult thing to do. And importantly, with something like this this particular show, setting off a new generation on their journeys into an outstanding franchise. I feel mm. like I feel like we're the torchbearers of good cinema with this this episode today. <laughs> well, then, then yeah, yeah we, we've we've talked about some good, some bad, but we get to talk about some really good films now. And so let's start right back at the very start, nineteen eighty five, big year for cinema. UK uh, admissions were at their all time lowest of fifty four million. Although let's be honest, last year was officially the low, the, the proper all time lowest. And then this film mm. comes out of nowhere and reignites audiences' love for science fiction. Steven Spielberg was involved. Robert Zemeckis was involved. Bob Gale wrote the script. Yeah. And but it's a relatively basic film if you think about it in the year 1985 Marty McFly exists a local nutty scientist by the name of Dr Emmett Brown with experiments just near a Burger King restaurant this gives you an idea of your setting when a clock experiment goes wrong and he realises that he's 25 minutes late for school he suffers Mm. humiliation his family are at war with each other his mum's overweight an alcoholic his dad is being bullied at the hands of one Biff Tannen a character we get to know quite a lot over the trilogy Mm. Uh, and his hot date goes down the pan when of course Biff Tannen crashes his dad's car and it's at this point where we we start to meet one of the most iconic characters in the film we got to really yeah. fly through because we got three films to cover. Uh, it's at this point where we meet Doc Brown for the first time, with yeah, one of the most the iconic moments in cinema, where we get to see the creation of a time machine out of a DeLorean. That is a yeah, unique enough premise as it is. Yeah, this did so much for the DeLorean brand, um, which is which I'm supposed I should be thankful for because the DeLorean was a terrible car. Yeah, it was a very bad but, car. It was a very bad car, um, and I think the only thing that good about it you could say is, oh, it's a car from Back to the Future. Um, so, yeah, it was, again, it's iconic. It's a cinema, example of, of iconography in cinema 
that you can put in front of someone and they'd be and they'd be like, oh yeah, that's Back to the Future. Yeah, again, very difficult to do. Very difficult to do, well. especially in the eighties when people like opening arms like, oh, is this home video the death of cinema? Then you have original IP like this coming out, taking influences from the Jules Verne time machine books, which I like the fact they reference Jules Verne later on in the trilogy. That is a nice touch. So we see the time machine for the first time. And again, of its time, powered by plutonium to get the 1.21 gigawatts of power needed to power the thing. First quote of the film. Uh, but they actually bring in, harsh to say, but they bring in a thing of terrorism because they bring in Libyans as the mm. whole plot device to bring in in terms of this is who Doc's seen from to get the power for the car. Very evocative of its time. And even then, that plot point hasn't dated that badly because it it, it 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 feels stereotypically back to the future not many people really complain about it mm. no it, it wasn't done the libyan terrorists weren't portrayed in a disrespectfully racist t- light they were terrorists from the beer yeah they were terrorists um, from the beer just here to get the plutonium that's it but well they were there yeah because and, and the thing is they weren't there for no reason, Doc sells them a, um, a, a dodgy bomb. Um, he claims it's a plutonium bomb. Uh, in the novels, it's revealed that he filled it with, uh, the bomb full of old pinball parts. I can't remember if that's in the future or not. Um, but in the novel, he, uh, he, he goes a step further, as novels do, and says, no, that it wasn't a plutonium bomb. I just filled it full of old pinball machine parts oh, and just sold it to them. And that's why they came such, to, to shoot him. Such a Doc Brown way of dealing with things. Pretty much, yes. So it wasn't done in a case of, uh, you know, a, a stereotypical racists or Libyan terrorists. It was no terrorist had a reason to be there. Yeah, but it's in this sequence we see the Dorian do its thing for the first time. We see that flux capacitor fluxing. We see it go to 88 and the car with Einstein, the dog in it, travels about two minutes into the future. The Libyans happen. Mm-hmm. Marty gets in it, makes an escape. We go back in time 30 years. And one of the things that... 19... It, to 1955... One of the things that influenced the production of the film in this way is they wanted to go back in time uh, to a point where it was still relatively recent in audiences' minds, but still far enough to make it feel authentic. They toyed back with going yeah. going to the 40s, they realised that wouldn't work because war, and then Bob Gale mm-hmm. settled on 1955 because it was still recent enough, they could get licensing for the songs that they wanted to use, and importantly, they could turn that Hill Valley set at Universal into a really authentic depiction of what Amer- a typical American town was like back then. Mm. And I like the fact that they yeah. use the same set for all three parts, and it's still at Universal Studios to this day. The clock tower is still there. Blimey. And they still film it. I, I remember they filmed a couple of episodes of Desperate Housewives on that set many years ago. They still use it for active shooting, which I find... It's on a studio tour and everything. That's how iconic this film is. Yeah, it's it's extreme. Yeah, it's it's got its place now, hasn't it? The whole set is is a part of movie history, Um, especially since the clock tower figures in into the um, into the plot, but yeah, Marty travels back to 1955, and in a chance encounter, he runs into his father and interrupts the meeting between his father and his mother. He, you know, his, his 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 mother explains, "Oh, George fell out of a tree watching birds." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Birds. Mm. George is obviously northerner, and um, <laughs> you know, it, it turns out that um, you know he he, he he was watching a bird. That's what not sure. not, the, not, the, not the kind of bird that we <laughs> thought he was watching. No. no. Um, yeah, he was he was watching uh, his his mother as a child being he basically being a peeping tom. And yeah. um, Marty interrupts the meeting, and to his horror, um, Marty, after he re- um, you know this obviously sets off a chain reaction of events unbeknownst to Marty, when he um, Marty seeks out the help of Doc Brown in 1955, who in order to get back. And Doc Brown, after you know, convinced after Mike convinces him that yep, he's legit. Doc Brown reveals actually by interrupting his parents' first meeting, Marty has essentially written himself out of existence and so disrupting the space-time continuum. Yeah, exactly. So he's he's written himself out of existence, as evidenced by that family photo that he Marty carries around. And that's and so key, the entire plot. That's a key point, is, point that we explore a little bit later on as well. Yep. Uh, so the, um, the the essential plot of the movie is Marty has to get his parents to meet again 
whilst trying to get back to uh, 1955 using um, powering the DeLorean using the storm, isn't it? Using uh, yeah, yeah, the lightning strike at the clock tower on November 12, 1955 at 10.04pm. Yeah. Oh, didn't even need to yeah, look at my nose for that. Um, yeah, 1.21 gigawatts. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it is a brilliant movie. It's a simple plot. I mean, the best plots are the ones that you... You have in one sentence. Yeah. You know, boy travels back in time, interrupts parents' meeting, has to fix it before he goes back. And there are added complications in that when Marcy meets his future mum for the first time, she gets a bit of a crush on him and flirts rather outrageously for a film released in 1985. Yeah. Initially, she calls him Calvin Klein at first because it's written on his pants. And then the truth truth eventually comes out. Well, yeah, like, I, I, I think. Well, I don't think they. Well, well the truth plays out over movie. the thirty years in between him interfering. Yeah, yeah um, I don't think. Yeah, he tells her for good reason, very good reason, because it would have been weird, and he would have been locked up in a mental asylum. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, it, it was, it was such a great movie, Back to the Future. I'm, I'm remembering it. I had the novels as well because I got them. I don't know how, where did I get find the novels. Uh, this was years back, though. This was when I was a kid learning to read. So, um, it's a brilliant movie on its own. Yeah, um, of course, starring Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, what? two titans in, in, yeah. in this in this uh, in this um, movie. I mean, this is in them at the height of their career. Indeed, it I, is. I think he, well, it wasn't originally meant to be Michael J. Fox. I had another guy audition for the Marty mm. role. But he had to step away because there was because Jay Fox was the the first choice. But he was working on an NBC sitcom, and they were unsure as yeah. to whether he could balance the. I think it was called Family. It was working on Family Ties. Yes, so he was unsure yeah. as it, whether he could work on Family Ties and Back to the Future at the same time because it was really late shoots on Back to the Future, especially like the first half of the film is majority of it shot at night. So they were unsure mm. as to whether he could do the sitcom and Back to the Future, and they shot. Yeah. The um, you built a time machine out of the DeLorean sequence with the other guy, and I can't remember his name, Eric Stender, something like that. Um, they shot that whole sequence with him, and then they realised it just wasn't working. So they paid Michael J. Fox a serious amount of money, and then little did they know he would be the right Marty for the job. Because if you think about it, is there anyone other than Michael J. Fox who could make it work at that age? sort of make no, the Marty role come alive. No, and it's got to the point now where the director of this is a firm believer of that fact that he's ensured he, that there is to be no remake made because it's like recasting Luke Sky, uh, Mark, Ham- Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Yes. You just can't see anyone else in that role at all. It's the whole entire reason why um, that plot twist happened in The Mandalorian. mm um, actually, do you know it's been enough time now if you haven't seen it you, you've obviously you know you know but yeah it, you know that it, it's one of the reasons why they 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 inter- essentially made the entire star the new star wars trilogy again because they needed to bring back all the old characters in some way shape or form i can't you know so michael j fox is again it's one of those roles where you just can't see anyone else doing the role yeah, especially the, the, the stunt work as well, because the next bit that we get to after the whole plan being set afoot, we get to see the first of many skateboard chases around Hill Valley. And that's one of the best... Yeah. Uh, for me, that is one of the, the best moments of the film, because we get... To, it's a theme that comes back throughout the trilogy, that you, you get beat-for-beat beat recreations of of this scene. Because the way it was shot, the way it was cut, the way the music comes in, because Alan Silvestri did the score for all three, and I can't fault Alan Silvestri at all, because he is an absolute god amongst composers in Hollywood. The fact that they got him to do the Avengers theme speaks a lot. Uh, But we get the whole... Marty tried to convince Lorraine to go to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, which is ultimately where they'd meet, they'd fall in love. George is a bit of a wuss... He's a bit too nervous to get the job done. So reminds me, reminds me, um, me of me. <laughs> I was that age. <laughs> so enter, enter a young Biff Tannen. We sin his older self in 1985, and it's Thomas F. Wilson who plays him in all <laughs> forms, whether it's prosthetic or with heavy moustache in part three. So Biff Tannen walks in. He's bullying George back in the day as well. He harasses him out of jealousy over the rain. So Marty stands up to him. 
Lorraine mm-hmm. falls in love right there after Biff is forced into a truck full of horse manure. Because I hate yep. horse manure. Because, <laughs> yep, because... Um... Well, Marty, him and Marty, uh, Marty ends up befriending his 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 future father, and attempts to sort of like get him to meet. But then he, he tries to sort of say, "Look, you've got to, you know, be brave, and you've got to." I don't want to say man up, but that's kind of what he says. I'm not a massive fan of that term, but hey, it was the '80s back then. We weren't so on top of language like that. Mm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like saying, you know, you've got to, you know, stand up. And he does this thing as well, where he um, Marty ends up invading Biff's house at night um, as this sort of pretending to be an alien from outer oh, space. Oh, yeah, like the invasion of George's house in, in the hazmat pets. suit. Uh, yes, I am Darth Vader yeah. from the planet Ultron and the Van yep. Halen cassette. <laughs> yep. Um, compul- you know, uh, throwing at us all of these pop culture references in a way that hasn't been done since. And, you know, Biff, um, sorry, uh, George McFly ends up Standing up for himself and socking Biff in the draw with a beautiful straight punch, and that's of course what fixes everything. Uh, and it fixes everything for the better because when Marty ends up going back, um, he realizes his life has improved in several ways. His, his father is a very successful science or fiction author uh, in the sort of sense of um, Kurt Vonnegut's yep. um, sort of style way of things, um, and the. And yeah, his mother is, is doing very well. And most importantly, Biff has sort of learned to shut the hell up from time to time and not be an, an, a, a grade a hole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is brilliant. And then um, we, we reach the end of the film. Everything is all well and good. They're successfully able to ride the lightning back up to 1985. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really differed between part one and part two is they did a slight recast for part two because you watch the end of part one and you see marty with his girlfriend jennifer who's played by claudia wells skip Uh forward three years jennifer has looks a lot more like ali with an eye because elizabeth shoe comes on board to play the role for part two onwards now Uh, yeah because before we go on to part two, I think it's important to say something um, that nobody expected this film, part one, Back to the Future, to do as well as it did. That's why it's just called Back to the Future, not Back to the Future Part One. And if the film ended there and there was and that was it, we'd still be satisfied. Yeah, I, I think it, it would all be it would all be hunky dory. As a one and done, it works so well. It works very very well. It's a brilliant self-concluding story. Um, it's it's and when you think about it, it's the most basic of time travel plots. Yeah, it doesn't get much simpler than this. It's the grandmother. It's kind of a a, a, a different sort of take on the grandmother paradox, isn't it? Mm. Where um, you know, if, if you go back in time and treat your own grandmother, that, that means your mum won't be born. That means you won't be born. Uh, but if you're not born, then what happens? And it's kind of an interesting sort of take on that. But time travel rules themselves, it seems. Um, they don't follow, they, they sort of follow the Terminator rules, I guess, where if you change something in the past, it immediately has an effect into the future. Yeah, the, the photograph um, is a key example of that. So as he's playing yeah, Earth Angel, he's disappeared from the photo again when yeah. uh, George uh, and Lorraine get together and Johnny B. Good mm-hmm. starts going out, the finger reappears. The photo yep. returns to normal. That's one of the things and, I loved about part one is the fact that every action had its consequences and the little hints yeah. to the fact that he's from the future. It's like, oh, yeah, I've seen this episode already, but it's brand new. How reruns, you'll yeah. learn about it. And the thing is, both these main characters of uh, Mike McFly and Doc Emmett, they work on such a great level. They really do. The, the chemistry there is brilliant. We don't care why Marty's hanging out with his creepy old Doc. Um, we don't care at all because he, he's such a friendly guy. Um, why, you know, we, we don't, it, it doesn't, we don't need to know. It's one of those things where you never even think about it mm. because the actors are elevating this to such levels. Um You've also got as well um, the actors and actresses who are playing George's, um, sorry, my parents. Brilliant. And I think one of the best things that really helps this movie is that everyone is playing the same character. Yeah. Regardless of what time period that we're in. That really helps because if you had someone else playing like Kid George McFly, 
I don't think it would have been easier to connect with the character. Yeah, um, literally oh. everyone keeps their roles with the exception of Marcy's girlfriend, yeah. and that was due to personal reasons more than anything. Yeah. And the thing is, as well, it's... Okay, so we can... It, obviously, Michael J. Fox is playing the quintessential cool 80s kid. You know, he's, he's wearing the latest hip clothes, he's got the electric guitar, uh, he's got the cool car that can travel back in time. And then you've got uh, Doc Brown, who is the quintessential mad scientist, essentially, friendly guy and obviously these two characters are the extreme almost at the extreme of their archetypes but what makes it so brilliant is that the other characters supporting characters you can identify with these characters yep. um in in some way shape or form you can still identify with them you know the the, the, the um the male the, the um the, the identifiable males of the audience can you know look at george mcfly and, and think to themselves oh yeah I, I remember a time when i wanted to ask someone out and i was too really too shy and everyone knows and, a bit tannin Everyone knows of Biff Tannen, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, who, you know, those who identify as female can look at, you know, oh, it doesn't even need to be a gender thing, does it? Because, uh, you know, it could be swapped easily enough. Um, you know, but everyone can look at that, um, the character of, of, of Mai's mum and sort of see, oh, yeah, the preppy girl, I remember when I used to be that popular or something along those lines. And you can identify with these characters. They're not far out of reach. It's brilliant storytelling. It really is. And the soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack yes. is brilliant. Huey Lewis and the News got their Huey big Lewis. break thanks to that. Yep. What? Well, those two songs. Power of Love mm. in the first act, and then you hear Back in Time over the end credits. Oh. Huey Lewis and the News, an already great band um, from the classic rock, given a career boost. I mean, it, it's just fantastic stuff. And it's a brilliant film. It's kid-friendly as well. It's one of those films where you can watch it at any age and love it. I mean, the BBFC agree with you. It's a PG nowadays, even though there are elements that are a bit, bit raunchy for a PG by the current standard. It is still mm-hmm. PG to this day, but I can literally prove it because I've got my copy of the Blu-ray up here. Because I've got, I've got the film, I've got the box set twice for some bizarre reason. I bought it on DVD years back, and then I bought the 30th anniversary Blu-ray when they brought that out, just because I wanted it on Blu-ray. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, there's a, you know, why why wouldn't you? It's a great movie. Five ones around, course, that's another perk. Yeah, and so Back to the Future, it was a brilliant movie. It really reinvigorated the cinema. Um, it's considered to be the greatest films, of, one of the greatest films of the 1980s, one of the best science fiction films ever made, one of the greatest films of all time. Library of Congress in 20, 2007 selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry. It launched uh, two sequels. It was made for a budget of $19 million. And it made over three hundred million. It was inevitable that a sequel was going to happen. And here's the thing about the sequels of Back to the Future. They're not bad. I know. That's one of the things that with these franchises, you've got that extra pressure of making a sequel that is a worthy successor. Let alone making two sequels that are worthy successes. And we've talked about many franchises over the last couple of weeks here on Rope Ticket. We've talked about Karate Kid, we've talked about Robocop. We've talked about Alien last series and how all of that franchise has played out. But with Back to the Future, these films, they just seem to add more and more and they still do not compromise on quality, even though we enter the, the realms of going into what a 1980s depiction of 2015 would look like. Yeah, which is about as amazing as it sounds, trust me. But one of the things as well, the thing about trilogies is that they sort of follow the sort of same path in that you have your characters in the first film and you have to build them up and, you know, they have their conflict and they win and they become better for it. And then in the second what movie, you're very familiar with the characters and they have the greater conflict and then they're better. And then in the third one, in the third movie, that's where it normally all goes to pop because it's like, well, you've had two adventures with them. What can you do? And there are many, many trilogies out there which follow that sort of same rule, don't they? The first one's good, the second one's brilliant, and the third one is just not as good. I mean, Indiana Jones is a great example of this. First one was great, second one was brilliant, and the third one is forgettable. And there's, there's so many out there that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about as well. Uh, the Dark Knight is a great yes. example of the Dark Knight trilogy. Batman Begins, good. The Dark Knight, great. 
The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. I've watched it once. I don't need to watch it again. Yeah. Forgettable. Back to the Future is, in itself, one of the greatest movie trilogies out there. Yeah. It really is. It's up there with Star Wars in terms of the best. It's up there with Lord of the Rings um, in, in terms of one of the best movie trilogies out there. And it helps with the second movie. The second movie was released in, uh, let's have a quick look here. The uh, release date was 1985. 80, well, release date was 90. Oh, no, that's, uh, I'm looking at Back to the Future 1. Uh, Back to the Future 2, yeah, you're right. Um, of course, you're right. It's 1989. Now, the important thing about this is, is that Back to the Future, they were so confident in their story that they filmed Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3 Back-to-back. Which actually helped them a lot in the end, because it was around this time that Michael J. Fox, unfortunately, got his Parkinson's diagnosis, and he worked on these films while Mm. dealing with all of that and doing the stunt work that he has to do in part three, which we'll get on to. That makes this Mm. trilogy even more impressive. It is. Now, it should be noted that when Back to the Future Part 2 was released, it did receive mixed reviews from critics. Mm. Some liked it, others didn't, but it has... Um, improved over time uh, as we look back at it and we realise now, with time, that it was actually one of Robert Zem- uh, Zemecki's um, yeah, one best of- films that he's done. Yeah. Like, unquestionably, and it's one of the best sequels of all time. I mean, I have my issues with part two, but it's still a cracking movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, I mean... So the film essentially takes place straight after the first one. Um, Doc Brown. We, my... see, we see a closing scene again, but with a little bit of a yeah. new perspective this time around, we see an old Biff Tannen seeing that time machine travel off to the future. We do, yes. Uh, Biff Tannen um, it, we, uh, sees the time machine. Uh, meanwhile, Marty and his girlfriend Jennifer, played by Elizabeth Shue this time, and Doc Emmett Brown go to the future. There's an issue where Marty's uh, children are going to end up um, in a sticky situation that Marty has to fix, and they do so, but they also discover a lot about their futures. Uh, well, Elizabeth, uh, sorry, Jennifer. Jennifer, does, yeah. uh, discovers, uh, Jennifer discovers that Marty um, suffers an accident, and as a result, he um, he resigns himself to a life in the future as essentially a desk jockey. Their life isn't too good at all. Their kids are essentially brats, and they and one of them also ends up in jail as well due to a bank robbery gone wrong. And it's very much done. They even get the facts uh, from Marty's employer, future Marty's employer, who fires him for taking part in some kind of illegal financial scheme. And we obviously get we, we get a really big clue into Mike's personality when he does this because he is called a chicken, which chicken. is one of the running. <laughs> Somebody calls Maya chicken, and he's just like, oh, right, yeah, no, it's on, it's on. Um, they end up going back to the future, but before they do, Marty purchases a sports almanac, mm. which uh, was printed in the future and contains a list of all the um, sort of highlights and yep. the wins. The Grey sporting, sporting Almanac 1950 to 2000. Yep, which uh, Marty comes up with an idea. He says, actually, I'm going to take it back to the present and I'm going to use it to make lots and lots of money. But Doc is like, no, Marty, you can't do that. It's irresponsible. It's wrong. It's not what the time machine was designed for. And so they throw it. um, But um, Biff, uh, the elderly Biff, um, overhears all of this. He waits until the time machine... Uh, is empty. Yeah, because the, the doc ultimately makes Marty put the almanac in a bin. Oh, yeah, he makes him put it back in the bin, doesn't he? But uh, Biff gets out, finds the time machine when it's unwatched, un- goes back in time, hands it, to, and then comes back, and we don't know what he's done, except for that bit where I've just accidentally mentioned it. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't... So we don't know what's happened, what the um, consequences are, <clears throat> until we go back to the present 1985 uh, where we uh, my, Marty discovers to his absolute horror that Biff is essentially the undisputed ruler of the um, of, of his hometown yep alternate timeline here we come yep and we get the alternate timeline story uh, which is a great time travel story oh yeah um, where 
uh, an event that happens in the past from the side of something from the future influences the past hits the present in this case biff has used uh, the almanac to take it back to his younger self and his younger self has used the almanac to gain all these riches he's got his own company now and he's also married to marty's mum. the shock and the horror marty having realized what has happened and after getting the answers from biff decides um, to take Doc and the time machine and both of them go back to 1955 in order to undo the damage that Marty has has inadvertently caused with his idea. It is a brilliant, brilliant plot. Yeah. What what a twist. What a twist, because it takes you right back to the first one. Yeah. Because it takes that theme that was put into the first one of you've got to be careful about what you do because you don't want to change the past and and I ask what happens if you do uh, in the worst possible way and it's Marty's nightmare um, Biff himself obviously allegories have been made to Donald Trump yeah the uh, influence the influence is very clearly there yeah and uh, it also is quite predictable as well about where um, America would end up which is weird um, but that's the best sci-fi movies are aren't they they make these sort of offhand comments and stuff and then it turns out, oh yeah, they were turned, they were right on the money. Yeah. So, what make again? What makes this brilliant is that Robert Zemeckis said that a sequel was not planned for the first film. It was going to be a one and done. That's it. And then the box office came in. The funders were very happy. Yeah, Universal were very, very happy with how it played out. Universal were doing great, and they went and said to director Robert Zemeckis, we want another movie. And Zemeckis had one um, caveat, uh, so one condition, and he said, only if Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd returned as well. And fortunately, they came back and we got the um, sequel all, you know, this this brilliant, brilliant sequel. Um, Now, there was one regret that they ended the first one uh, movie with Jennifer in the car because it required them to come up with a story that fit her in rather than a whole new adventure. I think the plot, the plan was if they were going to do a sequel, it would have been a completely whole new adventure, whole new day. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that this movie works because it continues on from the, the, the previous movie. I think a whole new adventure, I, I, I don't think that would have worked. Yeah, picking up exactly where we left off. I mean, the Karate Kid did the exact same thing, continuing the story right off from that comp- from the competition and then continuing the Miyagi mm. uh, and Dan's story further. I think what we're continuing one singular story over the three films. They might not mm. be intrinsically the same plot, but they are cleverly linked together where the events of the first film plays into the events of part three, the events of part two become more evident in part one, not especially the back end of part two where we get to see a completely different perspective of that mm. November 1955 sequence where the one rule is that future Marty can't interfere with what past Marty is doing. They can't yeah. pass. They can't touch each other. They can't even see each other because if they do, that is the end of the space-time continuum. Christopher Nolan did a plot similar to that in Tenet with the whole inversion thing. It's been out long enough I can start spoiling elements of that film now. So the influence of part two has had long-ranging effects on everywhere in Hollywood about how you yeah. how you can portray time within movies. Because that was yeah. that was the one thing I was thinking when I was watching Tenet. I was thinking, hang on, this reeks of Back to the Future Part Two a little bit. The ending of Back to the Future Part Two, where he's trying to avoid t- reaching himself. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that I really love about the sequel is the futuristic vision of the far future of 2015. Yeah. Um, now, the production designer Rick Carter. Um, you know, he realised that the Blade Runner had essentially set the image for what future cities would look like. Yeah. Smoke, chrome, dull, you know, dull sort of film noir colours. And so Rick Hart, the production designer, wanted to move away from that. Mm. And he wanted to create something which... So it was a subversion of the normal science fiction trope of when we look into the future, because when we look into the future, it's not, you know, in, in a lot of science fiction, 
a lot of what happened goes wrong in the future is due to technology. I mean, heck, you, you know, all you have to do is look at the Orwellian uh, future scene in most science fictions. Yes. Where it's technology that's used to oppress people. And the things that we see in the future of 2015's Back to the Future is pretty pleasant. Mm. 3D movies, you know, self-tying, self-drying shoes. Pepsi Perfect is a thing as well. Other Pepsi soft drinks Perfect. are available. Yep, in the future, that is. Um, you know, it, it's really... And it's one of the most noticeable things where, actually, what goes wrong isn't due to technology. It's just due to people's decisions. Mm. And a lot of respect for that. Okay. It's nice, you know, because when we... Because the whole thing about sci-fi is it's meant to be this warning of things to come, isn't it? It's, it's meant to be this sort of warning of what happens if we go down this road. Whereas with Back to the Future, it's like... Yeah, the future can be great. People can still make mistakes, but that's not because of the future's fault. It's just because of people's decisions. I like that. Respect. It's a very... The way that Bob Gale wrote it, it was Mm. very ambiguous in the way it was all, like, set out. But watching it back all these years later, you can sort of see that he had some very good intention for how he deliberately wrote this film to make it so the 2015, in his world... It's a very positive mm. place, so do we know what actual 2015 would play out like? Because um, actually, a fun fact, I actually remember watching the whole trilogy on Back to the Future Day itself in 2015. I've watched a whole lot on October 21st. Best six hours of my life ever. <laughs> oh, bless. Uh, but look, with part two, having it play out and seeing the events of part one from a new perspective, it, it, this is a nice little part of the setup for part three, in that... It's a successful mission again. We get yet more events involving younger Biff. Marcy followed him mm-hmm. to the school dance, took his precautions to avoid interrupting events. Eventually, Marcy gets the almanac back, stealing it from Biff's car using a hoverboard. Nice touch. Um, because, again, what would a Back to the Future film be without a bigger, better action scene involving some form of wheel or hover-based skateboard device? Yep, and, and in the back to the in the films behind the scenes featurette, Zemka said that the hoverboards were real yet not released to the public due to parents complaining about safety. And they were also on the DVD release of the trilogy and the extras. There is footage of quote unquote real hoverboards. A lot of people thought that Zemeckis was telling the truth, and um, they were the mo- one of the most requested items in toy stores. Um, despite not being real. Why would they not wear hoverboards? Every kid at that point in the 80s would want a hoverboard. Oh, Zemeckis, you... What's he like, honestly? But, um, yeah. But we, um, we get the hoverboard sequence. Biff tries to run <laughs> down Marty with a car. Hoverboard lifts, lifted into place. Doc lifts Marty into safety with a DeLorean. And Biff, in his nice little 1950s car, once again ends up in a trick of horse manure. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, now, there are obviously a few things uh, that were different. Um, Claudia Wells is replaced with Elizabeth Shue. She had to turn it down to personal reasons. Um, and so Elizabeth Shue was pulled. And then, of course, Crispin Glover, who played uh, George McFly. He didn't want to appear in this um, film, did he? He did not want to appear in this film. He couldn't come to an agreement with the producers regarding his salary. And there was also a philosophical degree, uh, disagreement on the film's message. He felt that the characters were rewarded with financial gain, uh, not with love. Um, and that's why he didn't want to um, appear on the film. So Zemeckis used previously filmed footage of Glover from the first film, as well as a new footage of Jeffrey Wiseman, the actor who wore prosthetics, including a false chin, nose, and cheekbones to resemble Glover. Um, However, um, this led to a lawsuit. Mm. Um, Glover filed a lawsuit against the producers of the film because he claimed that they did not own his likeness, nor did they ask him permission to use it. As a result of this, there is now clauses in the Screen Actors Guild collective bargaining agreement stating that producers and actors are not allowed to use such methods to reproduce the likenesses of other actors. Once again, making a long-ranging change within Hollywood. Indeed. And here's the thing, though. His legal action, even though it was resolved outside of the courts, it's been considered a key case in personality rights. 
um, with actors because they're, they're, there are now improved special effects, aren't there? In these films, you have um, deep fakes, which yeah, the deep fakes. I know they. Um, yeah. They use this sort of technology on on Rogue One to bring back characters from the dead, and they also did something like that again at the end of Rogue One to make um, someone look a little bit more like Carrie Fisher for the for the end sequence of Rogue One. And we're seeing a lot mm. more of that now in terms of digital recreations of actors for the purposes of resurrecting um, long gone yeah. talent. Yeah. Definitely, and it's still a key landmark case—the um, the George, uh, the, sorry, the Crispin Glover case—that um, is used to settle these disputes, where actors can have their likenesses being used, um, can't have their licenses, uh, sorry, can't have their likenesses being used without their agreement. Um, and like I said, Claudia Wells um, turned down the film for personal reasons, but don't worry, she had the opportunity to reprise her role from the first film 26 years later by providing the voice of Jennifer for Back to the Future, the game by Telltale, the Games. Telltale Games. I've actually played um, that. I've played a lot of the Telltale game because it was on Games of Gold a few months back. Game. Yep, obviously other games are available. Games available yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a, a great sort of little end to the story that, yes, yeah, she did try to come back. And the film was a major, major, major... Um, well, it received, like I say, it received mixed reviews from critics, it, uh, and it grossed a similar box office return of three hundred thirty-six million against uh, a far more improved budget of uh, four, uh, forty million. Yeah, and with this one, we, we also have the impetus of knowing that there would be a part three because they filmed it back to back, and the way they set up part three is fantastic. We see the lightning strike again from the future estate where Marty would live. The almanac mm-hmm. is burned. Docs and the DeLorean ready to go back to 85. Marty's about to get in, but then the lightning strike happens. Doc's gone. And doc, Doc's gone, and we don't know what's happened until... Western Union man comes later, in. The Western Union man comes in, uh, delivers a, a, a handwritten letter to Marty from Doc, who has revealed that he has been transported to 1885, in the time of the Wild West. And he has been instructed by Doc not to come back for him. Doc is happy in his new life. And Marty's normally okay with that until he discovers a grave um, that belongs to Doc Brown in the cemetery. As they find the DeLorean that they're about to sort of send him back. Indeed, meaning that that Doc is indeed in a lot of trouble. Now, um, when Marty goes back to Doc Emmett Brown, uh, Doc Emmett Brown has a sort of a, a, a heart attack faints because he thinks that Marty's gone back to the future and he can't deal with it. I I, I, I like th- I, the thing is though, I don't think that in that, that was looked at very closely in, in part two. It was just seen as him fainting. In the novels, um they really expand on that and say that actually if he dies, then that means everything goes down the tubes. Mm. Which is really, really interesting. But there you go. Um, but but you know, Marty um, revives Doc, and they um, and Marty goes back to eighteen eighty five, wearing some ridiculous duds. Well, what he um, what he thinks to be a so called cowboy <laughs> in nineteen eighty speak, which he realizes isn't what it's actually like. <laughs> Indeed, and um, there he travels back to eighteen eighty five. He finds uh, he's knocked out by a bear. Don't ask. Yeah. Um, and he's found, and, and they, um, he's found by his Irish-born great-grandparents, Seamus and Maggie McFly. And again, we get to learn a little bit more about Marty's family history and and these two important people. And then he walks to Hill Valley and runs afoul of uh, Buford. Buford Mad Dog uh, Tannen. Buford Tannen, Bill Tannen's uh, ancestor, and. The, the doc manages to save uh, Marty, but there is an issue. As as uh, Marty reveals the doc is fate, um, Marty also reveals that uh, during the t- um, one of his uh, adventures uh, with being after being knocked out by a bear, that the uh, DeLorean was hit by an arrow and it ruptured the fuel tank, which means that they have no gas to get home, and so they decide that they have to build a machine out of a locomotive... So they have to push the DeLorean using the locomotive to get at 88 miles per hour, and the rest of the film happens. It's brilliant. Yeah. It is one of the best 
prequels ever. Yeah, because it does a lot in terms of the backstory as well, because we not only yeah. do we get the closure for the Marcy Doc story, we also get, for the very first time, the Doc has a love interest. Mary Steenburgen came on board for this film, and she only did this film because her kids really wanted her to be in a Back to the Future movie. And she <laughs> comes on board yeah. as Clara, which was, and he said it in the commentary, Christopher Lloyd's first on-screen snog. Mm. Yep. That's the and level of commitment these people went to to make part three such a good mm. film. Yep, it's brilliant. Now, the origins of the of the Wild West um, in the uh, actually lie with Michael J. Fox, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, during the filming for the original, uh, Zemeckis asked Michael J. Fox, um, you know, it, what time period he would want to see. And um, Fox said, well, if I had a time machine, I'd want to visit the Old West and meet the Cowboys. Same here, actually, because I'm a massive fan of the American Wild West. And this sort of inspired Zemeckis, um, and, and they thought, well, actually, how cool would it be if Marty went back to the Wild West of, um, of you know, in, in his town, of Hill Valley? And they held out for it. They held off it until part three. And it is brilliant. It turns out it is fantastic. Um, the set design is quintessential Wild West town. Yep. Um, the costumes are, are, are fantastic. It, it's I, 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 the, the set design in these movies for Hill Valley and is just it's next level. Yeah, where it's time. It really is. Um, because it doesn't feel but, yeah. like it's all shot on a backlot. It really doesn't feel like it's all shot no. on a backlot. The way they were able to put these all three films together, the 2015 stuff was mm. ahead of its time, well, partly because they had Industrial Light and Magic working on visual effects, and ILM have been, like, the purveyor of visual effects within Hollywood since 1977 and Star Wars happening. So they've had the best VFX artists working on this movie, but the whole Western stuff... Focusing more on that in-camera stuff, they made that desert version of Hill Valley. You could still recognise it, even though none of the buildings that you know from the 55 or the 85 versions are there. The clock tower is there, and one of the key plot points is the clock actually being activated and that iconic picture being taken. Yeah, the picture of Doc and Marty in front of the, in front of the clock, um, which is a, a lovely little... Uh, piece of iconography from the third movie but again we also get to see um characters that we all sort of recognize um we we, we see um biff tannen's um ancestor uh buford mad dog tannen um played by thomas elf wilson who also plays biff tannen that's a the thing they get these people back you know um maggie mcfly is played by leah thompson um, who plays Lorraine Baines McFly, Maggie's, uh, sorry, um, Marty's mum. Again, I, I don't think we, we well, let's have a quick here and see. I don't, I, I don't, I don't remember Chris Spingler being involved aside from no, the ending. Seamus, no, Seamus McFly is the portrayed Fox, by yeah. Fox this time. Um, but yeah, um, so we still get to see the, some of the characters being portrayed by, you know, the, um, the original actors. Um, and it was released six months after the previous instalment as well. That's unheard of. That's like Infinity War coming out in December and Endgame coming out in April. It's just unheard of. Yep, and it was a noted improvement over its predecessor. Critics loved it. Yeah. They really did. Um, It's... And, and what makes this trilogy this trilogy so great is that it's just one elongated story. Mm, yes, indeed. I go back to what I said earlier in that yes, all right, having Marty's girlfriend finish um, her story in the car and then flying off was a bit of an inconvenience because they then had to come up with the reason as to you know they had to come up with the continuing on with the adventure instead of starting a whole new day. That might explain but, why she's asleep for half of the film. Yeah. However, it still works. It's one long adventure. It's 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 an epic science fiction tale. It's brilliant, and I, I, I and the ending to Back to the Future Three as well. Oh, what it, what an ending! You could not win that any better. It, it is 
Yeah, I mean, I'll let you do it, Dragon. So, ending it back to Future Part 3, after successfully getting a time train over what would eventually become known as the Eastwood Ravine, little callback to a fight between Buford and Marty towards the end of the film, which again is a callback to Biff watching uh, a Clint Eastwood film in his Pleasure Palace in Part 2, with the, the whole, oh, I'm actually wearing bullet armour. So Marty had um, saloon door um, on his chest to prevent being killed. Again, changing yeah. the events of the film. So, mm-hmm. Time Train successfully gets back to 85 Hill Valley. We think all is well. Level Crossing starts doing its thing. The DeLorean is destroyed. That's it. Yep, no done. more travelling. He goes to see Jennifer. Waking up after the events of Part 2, claiming that she had a horrible nightmare about the future. <laughs> They then travelled down to the site where the DeLorean was destroyed. Well, before yeah. well before that, they encounter the incident in which the Rolls-Royce incident that was referred to in part two, preventing the events that would get Marty sacked from his job. Nice callback there. Subtle one for the diehard fans. That's when the You're Fired and- facts disappears. Yeah, and it's a brilliant example of character development where Marty has finally learned that if someone calls him chicken, he doesn't have to rise to the bait. And it's this character development that he's learned over these three movies that prevents him from making a horrifying mistake uh, involving a car crash, a lawsuit, and fin- and his crippled future. And the, the, facts, the facts machine message that, um, you know, dictates the future... Um, that Jennifer has been holding on to is erased. It is now just a blank piece of paper. And then as they go to the crash site of the DeLorean, um, there is a um, that triple sonic boom, easily recognisable, and a, and a steam locomotive flying out of the sky comes along equipped with a flux capacitor, manned, of course, by uh, Doc Brown. And his now Clara wife, Gainsman. Clara. His wife Clara and their two children Jules and Vern, and uh, they reveal that all is well, safe, all is well. They're going to live happily ever after. And Doc reveals after Jennifer asks about the facts that it means the future hasn't been written the yet. The future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. And everyone says goodbye and they depart. And yeah, so end of one of the best trilogies ever. And now, it, like I say, it's. It's such a great trilogy that the director has basically refused to let remakes happen. Yeah, but he's basically said no to remakes. As long as I, me and Bob Gale are alive, I'm not going to authorise any remakes because you do not mess mm. with that. Although one thing about that ending, and one of my journal executive producers pointed this out, and uh, he actually ruined this ending for, for, for what I think is a perfect ending. So Ed Greenberg... You are a git for telling me this. Um, he pointed out something I can't not see. So during that final moment where we get introduced to Jules and Vern, one of the boys decides on camera during a very take that they'd use to actually scratch his balls. And they oh, use wow. that take. Jesus. And if it wasn't for Ed Greenberg mentioning that moment to me... I would have still held that film... I still hold that film well, but I wouldn't have enjoyed it as... Well, I enjoyed it less after he pointed it out. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Things, I'm going to be it's speaking with him on Friday like... about it as well. Did you really have to say that? But no, it is a fantastic, brilliant trilogy. Um, and it's... Again, trilogies are really, really hard to do because... You know, what adventure can you have? You've got to get people invested in that character for three whole movies over a long period of time. And it were you know, Back to the Future is one of those it's one of the best trilogies in cinema history. Yep. Like no doubt about it. Because it has characters, they grow, it has a brilliant time travel plot that is very it, it's complex when you think about it, but when you watch it, it's not. They make it so simple and easy to follow. And it has so many amazing moments and so many jokes that occur over and over again. Mm. Um, one of my biggest regrets is on there was Back to the Future Day on in 2015, 
where they had Back to the Future, the whole trilogy, back to front in my local cinema, and I didn't yeah, go. I, I, yeah, my my local had it. I I got to see part one in cinema in 2010 for the 25th. And I had the Blu-ray yeah. for the for the first for the Back to the Future Day itself, and I watched the trilogy on Back to the Future Day. But seeing it on a big screen where it was designed to be watched, that was a real bucket list experience for a franchise that spawned a lot, an animated series, a um, couple of rides at Universal Studios in Orlando, Hollywood, and Japan, which have closed in the years. The ones in Hollywood and Orlando were replaced with a Simpsons ride. God help us. The Japanese one was replaced by Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem. And they, it mm. even spawned. It's quite timely because it's the anniversary of it opening pretty soon. Uh, last year, Back to the Future the Musical opened in Manchester. Unfortunately, it only managed two weeks uh, before the lockdown kicked in. Uh, but a musical yeah. does exist based on the first film. Zemeckis and Gale were involved. Alan Silvestri wrote the music for it. So they're finding more and more ways to not remake it per se, but to tell the story of the original in new ways that can get new audiences engaged with the brilliant original movie. Mm. Yeah, and it's smart. It's, it's such a smart thing to do, isn't it? Just create a musical. If you can't create a remake of the film, just redo the film in musical format. Mm. I'm really, really glad that the director allowed that to happen. And because like you say, it introduces people to this new, this, this brilliant movie, but it's people who wouldn't normally go see back to the future. They're more musical lovers. And they, they watch this and they're like, wow, wow, this is brilliant. I have to watch this movie now and see what happens. And they're introduced to this brilliant trilogy. Yeah, and importantly, the spirit of the original is there as well, because Power of Love is one of the songs, Back in Time is one of the songs, and like I say, Sylvester mm. wrote the score for it. So it's got all the hallmarks of the original, and everyone was involved. It's just a shame that it well, had been in production for about five years. I started working on it in 2015. It's just a shame it opened weeks before COVID came into our lives. Well, yeah... Ho-hum. Well, we, we, know, we, we know for a fact it's going to be opening in London once restrictions are eased. So it's got a West yeah. End home. And that, for the musical theatre mm-hmm. nerds, that is a good thing because that is a captive audience right there. Mm. Definitely. Hopefully when life returns to whatever normalcy is going to be, um, we can all go back and watch this one day. But um, yeah, Back to the Future. Cut, rap, print. Send the press. Yeah. Literally wrote um, that line um, into my script as well. I'm getting good at writing <laughs> these podcasts now. There you go. And um, next week, we're talking about another trilogy, because that was your favourite trilogy, isn't it? It, I it, think it's it, it is, yes. It is my absolute favourite trilogy. My favourite trilogy is a very personal choice for me, um, because it's a trilogy that helped to introduce fantasy to the masses, what was uh, what has been in the past downgraded to uh, a genre that only nerds like and 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 geeks was suddenly cool again, thanks to Peter Jackson. It is of course the Lord of the Rings, which I'm watching today, and it's oh, brilliant. No. I love the fact so, that all of the films that we've picked for, with the exception of Robocop, for this podcast so far, were on the big list that cinemas got for reopening last year. I know. Because the local local cinema, on the the week that they reopened, they did the whole Lord of the Rings extended trilogy over one day, and they had... Mm. It was a socially distant sellout. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Brilliant. But yeah, we'll be talking about Lord of the Rings, uh, the trilogy, and... I put it's got it's going to be a very personal episode for me. Definitely. Oh yeah, well, 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 it wouldn't be a series of rip ticket without one or two personal episodes along the way. That is yeah. it. That is basically yeah. it for this week. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook yeah. or YouTube, stay tuned to social media for the details exactly when we're going to be live next week. We always like to confirm that. Uh, ahead of when we're on air. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the podcast platforms, why are you not watching live every week? Because it's the best experience of the lot. Uh, we are live on Facebook and YouTube uh, every every week at some point from 3pm UK time. It varies week on week, depending on our availability. Uh, on, yeah. to- on top of that, uh, we have a whole mind. We've got a whole series worth. If you're new to the podcast, we have an eight episode series one that we did during lockdown one, covering themes like the room, the crow, 
Edgar Wright series Spaced, Alien, uh, superhero films within cinema, uh, and just for the research last year, we did a whole episode on Christopher Nolan films. Of course, next week we're looking at I've, I've, it's hard not to say what another one of the greatest trilogies of all time called Lord of the Rings it's going to be a yep. good episode it's going to be another cracking episode I can feel it uh, so if you, so we will be back at some point next week with more ripped ticket review goodness until then my name's been Jack Smith and I've been Dan Carver until next week we'll see you at the movies take it easy everyone and uh, remember roadmaps aren't definite films are we'll see you at the movies bye 